The wheel of time turns and ages come and pass, leaving memories that become legend. Legend fades to myth and even myth is long forgotten when the age that gave it birth comes again. Welcome to Through the Glass Columns, a Wheel of Time read-along podcast. Each week, we will be reading, discussing, and digesting a small selection from Robert Jordan's fantasy opus. This quest is led by Tyler, a true Wheel of Time warrior. I have all stories, ages that were and that will be. And I'll be joined by Greg, a complete novice to the Wheel of Time. The Wheel of Time and the Wheel of a Man's Life turn alike without pity or mercy. Join us each week as we read the Wheel of Time in our own sweet time, traveling deeper and deeper through the glass columns. But what does that even mean? No, 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 no. no. You don't get to find out yet. (laughs) Hello, and welcome back to Through the Glass Columns, your weekly read-along Wheel of Time podcast, joining you live from about halfway through book three, The Dragon Reborn. Hard to believe it that I I was actually at a bookstore this weekend shopping for book number four. They didn't have it. But it's that time, folks. It's time to get those pre-orders in and make sure you have plenty of time as you're out at your bookshop because we're headed into the back half of this book, which means book four is coming. Uh, Joining me, as um always... It's also just amazing uh, that me. Greg's excuse definition me. of live. Excuse me. Excuse me. <laughs> excuse me. I have not introduced you. You're not allowed to talk. <laughs> Joining me, incredibly rudely, leave this in, don't edit it out, is Tyler. Tyler, how are you tonight? I'm doing very well. I'm just marveling at the fact that your definition of coming to you live includes recording a week and a half in advance. So, uh, yes, we are very live at this point in time. Uh, I'm very excited to be getting to talking talk about this book because this is a book that gets better as it goes on. I don't know whether you experienced that this week, Greg, but I very much had a moment this week where I was like, oh, yeah, this is what I'm looking for from a Wheel of Time book. It didn't necessarily move the plot an enormous amount forward, but I had fun reading every little bit of it. Yeah, I think I said last week these were my favorite uh, Matt chapters last week, and I would say this probably increased that again, and um, we will save the specifics for the appropriate time, but it is just a lot of fun to read this book right now, and makes me excited to get to pick it up. I, I will say I'm not at the stop recording, run upstairs, and immediately pick it up phase yet. That yeah. That tends to come later in the book, but... I'm certainly, you know, when I sat down this weekend and was like, ah, time to crack this open, um, I was excited. I'm like, oh, good. It's been, you know, a week since we we uh, checked in on this and I want to check in again. So uh, very excited. So tonight's discussion will, of course, be about Chapter 31, The Woman of Tanchico, and Chapter 32, The First Ship. Um, and before we do that, I believe Tyler wanted to have <clears throat> a discussion on a podcast about something that's visual that we don't share to anybody it's a ill-advised discussion of visual media on a non-visual podcast or whatever we call this that's more or less exactly what we called it except without the music and i was not going to stop you at any (laughs) point during that uh yes it is time once again for ill-advised discussion of visual media on a non-visual podcast and we were just talking about how it was kind of a fun breezy week because we were spending a lot of time with matt 
And now it's time to completely change the topic away from Matt entirely to the not fun and breezy part of this week's reading. We're going to be talking about the image that graces the cover of the trade paperback of The Dragon Reborn. Uh, Greg, you will post this on social media at the appropriate time. I trust you. It's going to happen. But if you are looking at some <laughs> point when it is difficult to go back and look at our social media, just Google Dragon Reborn ebook or trade paperback cover. You will find the image. It depicts Rand sitting on what appears to be a root or a stump, which is covered with the dragon banner. He is holding his flute and he is looking off into the middle distance. And this image, to some degree, is an adaptation of the scene that we got at the end of our reading this week. But it also is clearly very different from what we saw. For example, this depicts the day and there is a campfire in the chapter that we were reading. So I'm curious what you think about the fact that we are getting a an image of Rand who doesn't appear very much in this book at all. And then B what kind of appears to be a composite of multiple scenes of him rather than an actual adaptation of any one moment from the book. Uh, I think it's Rand because he remains the titular character of this yeah. book. I completely agree that he is not a major part of it thus far. Um, but I think that's going to immediately be who people are thinking of when they see the title. And, yeah. you know, while covers are often tied to a specific moment in the text, they are more than anything, something to make people want to buy the book. And so if you've read the first two, you're like, oh yeah, I gotta see what's going on with Rand. Um, the actual image itself reminds me a lot of portraiture, not that it's mm -hmm. as stayed as kind of you know, the Dutch masters or some such, but the way it's uh, somebody posed with symbols of who they are. Right. Yeah. And, you know, like the famous scientists are always posed with, uh, you know, a globe or uh, an astrolabe behind them. And well, maybe it's the merchants who are posed with a globe or the navigators yeah. and ship captains. And so it feels like it's very deliberately kind of evocative of that tradition where we have Rand. He's clearly sitting on the banner of the dragon, yeah. uh, it appears. Odd choice. Uh, not sure. Yeah, that's that's Indiana Jones style archaeology, right? <laughs> Where it's like, yes, we will protect this thing that belongs in a museum unless we need to just, you know, have a good sit down. Uh, and then one of the things I, I'll say before throwing it back to you is that we criticized the oldest set of covers for being kind of a Hildebrandt, very loose interpretation. I'm yeah. struck looking at this. It really looks like how Rand should look. He's got the red hair. Yeah. Uh, I appreciate that the the sword is visible laying across the banner, and it appears to have that kind of katana shape to yeah. it. So it gets a lot of those small details correct, um, which I think matters a lot, and especially if these are covers that are coming out once this is an established series with a lot of fans. I think it's important they get those details right. Well, and I think that that's one of the things that you get when you have people who are doing the art who haven't just had a chance to read the book or maybe even like a rough draft or a few chapters of it, but they've had a chance to sit with the book for a decade in some cases for some of these covers. And I think that is something that I really appreciate about the new sets of covers that we get is they're not always necessarily the biggest moments or even the ones that are necessarily, as we're saying here, an actual scene from any anywhere in the work, but they kind of all in some way gather the the kind of 
sentiment of the book in a way that I feel like you just can't get from, as you're saying, one of those cover artists who very frequently is just working from an idea more than anything else. And so it's impossible for them to adapt some of these specific moments. Um, I'm kind of with you. I think this is a really kind of classic looking image. It feels like a portrait and cool, right? Like it doesn't feel super <laughs> fantasy to me, I guess is my one concern about this. And I, I would say compared to the other books, this is the one so far that feels the most kind of like an action adventure story rather than like a more traditional, like tell all the lore and work your way through the world kind of fantasy we've gotten so far. So it's interesting to me that this is kind of the most staid and static of the images that we've gotten on either set of covers at this point. But other than that, I really don't have much criticism of it. I think it works in spite of the fact that it's maybe an odd fit for the book that it's attached to. Um, the only other thing I want to praise, um, the composition around Matt is really mm. nice. There's there's a good circle design to kind of remind us we're in Wheel of Time. Um, and then the way Matt is in shadow with light clearly kind of coming Rand. through the tree canopy above it. Sorry, Rand. What did I say? Matt? Matt uh, yeah. spoiler, spoiler for where else we're going this, this book. <laughs> the way Rand is sitting in the shadow with these kind of cracks of light. And I yeah. think that is a nice way to kind of get us to question, is he of the dark or the light at this moment? Is he being tempted away? Um, but also just like the mood of this book, like a lot of yeah. these characters are in a pretty dour place and they're in kind of a dark grumpy space, but there are, you know, cracks in that and ways yeah. that the light is poking through. So definitely a, a great image. I'd buy the book. That is Far better of analysis than I will ever offer to any piece of visual media. I have nothing else to say. Good work, Greg. Why don't we let me summarize chapter 31, The Woman of Tanchico, which luckily is the shorter of our two chapters. Get ready for a giant brick of text when I start describing the next chapter. In The Woman of Tanchico, Matt enters what appears to be kind of a well-to-do inn. It appears that there are more like merchants and nobles than he's seen anywhere else. And immediately he noticed someone notices someone playing a harp and realizes that it is Tom. Um, he orders a drink for him himself and also Tom without saying who it is he just says his friend and then he uh, basically invites Tom to sit with him um, Matt notes that uh, Tom was really surprised that uh, when he saw Matt enter the room um, and once he sits down it becomes apparent very quickly that Tom is very drunk and very depressed and just not in a good place after what we saw in the previous book um, as soon as Rand mentioned I'm sorry as soon as Tom third time's the charm as soon as matt mentioned <laughs> rand tom immediately perks up and uh he starts paying more attention he's clearly more in tune with the conversation but it's also obvious that he is still pretty drunk for example he lets slip that he thinks that moraine is very attractive um he says that he suspects lots of things about rand but doesn't know anything and matt being conscious of not giving away any of rand's secrets changes the conversation to the nation of kyrian which yes that's apparently how it's pronounced 
cast, according to the television show. Uh, Tom basically says at this point, when Kyrie N comes up, he gets out his knives and talks about how you can get in trouble even for killing someone who deserves it. Um, and then he says he's basically in Tarvalon because it's the worst place for him other than Camelin. Uh, Matt then tries to tempt Tom to go along with him. And the way that he does it is by mentioning that he is going to the only place worse than Tarvalon, Camelin. At this point, uh, the barkeeps are very upset and clearly both have been in a relationship with Tom. Uh, and then he leaves suddenly uh but matt notes right before they leave that he ran into trouble with foot pads and tom says there are never any foot pads in tarvalon uh so it's a very brief chapter but interestingly one that i think gave me more insight into tom than i think we had maybe gotten in the previous two books um what was your take on this chapter which was very brief but i thought also really dense with a lot of character and world building yeah, I think my primary reaction that I wrote down in my notes, it says surprised, but really should not have been. Uh, I wouldn't have said last week we were about to meet Tom again, but it's like, you know, book two had made it so clear that he was still a part of this story. Mm -hmm. And we had somebody going into a tavern who's in taverns, but the the Gleeman and, you know, it should have been obvious in so many ways. So um, and I actually give that as kind of a credit to Robert Jordan to make something yeah. feel so logical and obvious and yet not have it be predictable i think is actually a really fine balance uh to have worked yeah um the other dynamic i really liked in this chapter is i liked how um essentially pr protective the bar keeps were of yeah. um of tom and there's this really endearing way they're like because Matt orders two two wines and um, they were like, if you had told me that one of those was for him, I never would have uh, yeah. in a 200 years have done that for you. And and I just kind of liked the way that that did a little bit of character work where it's like, oh, he's not just in a little bit of a bad way. He's been in the bad way for a while enough that all these kind of people around him care enough to try to stop what's happening. I think it's also just really notable of a character that they can go on like what is clearly a months long bender and be in the worst state that someone who knows them relatively well has ever seen them. And yet they're still making friends, right? Like most of us are not in a position where we are at our worst and we get the people around us like wanting to protect us and look out for us right like if i went on a several month long blackout drunk bender i would not have people being like yeah he's a good dude that's not how i function i think this says a lot about tom and maybe also a lot about me you're saying this as if you are somebody who was dming a game just last night wherein I had too many drinks and eventually got you to say, I hate you so much. I hate you so, so much. Uh, so yes, I think, I think that's a good point and, and does speak to him. It's, it's, you know, in D and D we'd call that like high charisma, right? Like you're yeah. so just lovable and likable that you're able to overcome being a nasty, nasty drunk. And the reaction is not, to write him off, but to protect him. I, I do think that's, that's uh, pretty masterful. Um, you know, and, and I guess the thing to say about that is I'm really glad to see Tom again, even if yeah. he's this kind of fallen state, I don't know. It doesn't seem like he's going to be kind of wallowing this very long. And mm -hmm. so I, I do think it was, 
I, you know, it, it tends to have happen. It's absence makes the heart grow fonder, right? These characters yeah. go away and then they come back and it's like, Oh, I'm really excited to see Tom again and to develop more of his story as we continue. And I think built kind of tied up in that is the fact that we have a, a gap in Tom's story. And then when we come back, we kind of get these very intriguing clues about what happened in that gap. And I think that that does exactly what you're describing, right? We have that absence making us, interested in this character who we haven't seen and then immediately there's kind of a hook that gets us to go like "Ooh, i need to know more about this um two moments in this kind of stood out to me um one is the moment when tom gets out his dagger and basically says i did some killing and it was okay um the other moment that stood out is Tom is always, always, always anti-Aes Sedai in every situation we have seen and yet when he gets drunk enough, his immediate response is to talk about how good of a woman Moraine is. And that seems a little bit odd from someone whose objective was to get the boys away from Moraine for an entire book. So I'm curious what your thoughts were on either of those moments. Um, Yeah, actually, I was trying to think what was nagging at the back of my mind, and I figured it out with a light Google. Um, I was thinking of uh, the Andrew Garfield Spider-Man in uh, Spider-Man, um, whatever the last one was, No Way Home, um, where, you know, we have a similar figure who lost, he lost his Gwen in his real reality. And when they're kind of debating what happened, he says, um, I got rageful. I was bitter. And yeah. that's kind of the version of this I see is Tom is not a bad person, right? Right. And is somebody who is acting out of a righteous anger, but has given into the worst parts of himself. And I think, you know, he got rageful. He got yeah. bitter and seems to have passed through that stage of grief into just pure depression. I don't know if that's the right order for the stages of grief. We need our, uh, well, our beloved uh, psychologist listener to to write in and, and walk us through that. Um, so, uh, but it does seem like he, you know, you know, it's the old story. He got his revenge and the revenge did not fulfill him. And that's what yeah. has uh, led him to try to fill it with drink instead. Uh, I think that is a really great psychological analysis that does a really good job of breaking down kind of where Tom's at and what's going on there. Um, I just need to add on top of it because I read these books when I was like 13 and all I cared about was what was cool. Dude, Tom killed a king. Like, that's what he just admitted, right? <laughs> Uh, yeah, well, and and we have these rumors that there's been turmoil in that city. And it's like, oh, yes, now we yeah. we understand it wasn't just like the next play in the game. It is the game board got knocked over. Yeah. And now all the pieces are scrambling to find their positions. That um, metaphor worked, right? Yeah, that worked. Sure. Yeah, I'm in. <laughs> I, I'm down with it. Um, other than I think you were right to highlight at the beginning of our discussion, the the barmaids. I had a couple of moments where I was like, that's just a fun moment that I really appreciate and it tells me something about Tom and it creates these characters that I'm sure will show up again at some point if someone goes to an inn in Tarvalon um, but other than kind of those barmaids then the next moment that really stood out to me was at the end of the chapter uh, Matt's kind of mystery around where did the bodies go law enforcement wouldn't have taken those bodies also those bodies can't be footpads felt like a really good bit of like 
it only took two or three paragraphs, but it really seemed to amp up the stakes for the next chapter in a way that I kind of wasn't anticipating after that kind of battle in the previous chapter got, you know, kind of the, the steam let out of it so quickly. Yeah, I mean, I think the battle and the logic behind it made total sense. He'd been loud and winning a ton of money at Tavern. So, of course, some pickpockets would get bold and try to get the money back for somebody or just as an easy score. So in that way, I think I was lulled into not questioning it. And then after this, it's like, oh, okay. So I my read on this is this is probably associated with the Gray Men. There are kind of a team of assassins coming. And while we might not have thought they would be targeting Matt as a part of this, Matt is well known enough. It's hard to believe people would know he blew the horn, but he's well known enough that there's going to be... um, trouble for him ahead this isn't going to be a smooth road he's being hunted yeah and i think if we're talking about uh the this being kind of tied up with the gray men it's worth noting that probably means it's in some way or another tied up with Baalzaman or the forsaken and they know he blew the horn right so all it takes is one commander and you know things are off um other than that I don't really have much else to add to this chapter, right? I think it's it's relatively brief. It's a great reintroduction to Tom. Um, that's what I have to say about it. Anything else before I probably talk for five minutes? Because I have way too many notes on the first ship. Oh, I have so many notes on the first ship, too. Uh, <laughs> so I um, I have one little bit I put at the bottom of my page of notes on, on this chapter. And um, I don't know that this is a segment that deserves its own theme song, but I'll call it Matt watch. So continuing to watch Matt and try to figure out when he's Matt and when he's somewhere else. I had two suspicious moments or two suspicious kind of characters in this one. One is um, they tell him he has pretty eyes. And um, when they say you have pretty eyes, he has the natural reaction. Again, it's totally explainable where he's just like, oh, a pretty lady thinks I have pretty eyes. Like I'm not doing so bad. But because eyes are so much a part of parents' transformation, it makes me wonder, Mm -hmm. is this a thing where we're going to have like eyes are the window into the soul and whoever this new charming gambler is, could that be he had beautiful eyes? Are they actually Matt's eyes or are they not? Okay. Um, And then the second thing on that, I would say, is how fast he turned Tom around. Now, it could just be, again, that Tom's had no direction. The thoughts of Rand, the thoughts of saving him from Moraine, all of that kind of invigorates him. But it just felt like Tom turned a little too quickly. And so it made me think, Uh is part of this good luck? You know, we talked last week about the... uh, Felix Felicitas from Harry Potter, where like everything just goes your way. It's like this almost felt like that kind of moment. Like he accidentally shares just the right details that inspire him and invigorate him and move him along. So um, again, it's it's a nice little thing that can cover a plot hole. Maybe it's just we needed to move Tom along, but it felt like there was a little more than just regular old Matt at work in that. So and Uh that closes out my notes. I would actually add one more thing to that list. Um, There was a moment in this chapter where Matt is listening to a number of the people, kind of the well-to-do people at the inn, talk about like trade routes and the harbor and things like that. And he, there's a moment where the narration says that Matt is kind of like making note of things, even if he doesn't know how he'll use them now, it's always valuable to have information stored away. And that to me immediately read as the kind of thing that like a general 
would think to do, but Matt Cawthon from the mm-hmm. Two Rivers might not. So if we're thinking of kind of things that might give us that those odd vibes, I think that might be another thing I'd add to the list. Really good idea. Matt Watch, D-D-D-D-D, or whatever your sound effect was. Chapter 32, The First Ship. Uh, Matt makes his way to the South Harbor with Tom kind of hobbling along behind and then quickly even getting rid of his own walking stick because he doesn't actually need it. He's just drunk. He sees a ship casting off, decides that he is definitely going to get on that ship. And then a guard warns him off trying to escape, saying that he knows him and he's not going to be able to get out. Um, as I wrote in my notes, Matt immediately detonates his nuke, gets out the co- the piece of paper from the Merlin and shows it to the first person who asks. They let him continue on, and he and Tom leap off of the harbor and onto the ship. Very quickly, they are surrounded by people who are, to- who are telling them there is absolutely no room on board. Matt uses his letter again uh, to try to get the captain to let them stay. The captain says he's willing to, but he doesn't have any place for them to stay. Uh, unless he is willing to uh, offer money, basically. Uh, Matt initially negotiates a couple of gold to sleep on the deck, but then eventually realizes he could kick the captain out of his own quarters and pays 10 gold pieces to make that happen, as well as eating the captain's meals. Um, Matt is then kind of listening to all of the details on the ship, doing the same thing that we were talking about him doing at the bar. Um, And then he is talking about Captain Malia, the person who is running the ship. Um, And he starts describing what is going on in his home country of Tyr, whether he thinks that Matt is a spy for them or for someone else. And he starts describing the policies of High Lord Simone and how he hates channelers and is trying to destroy the Aes Sedai. Um, And Matt kind of starts to tease him for how much he is going into this and the guy almost like snaps out of it and then kind of corrects himself and says he doesn't actually agree with everything that Simone believes. Uh, Tom then says he knows kind of all of the politics of Tyr and he has never heard of High Lord Simone. Um, At this point um, Matt and Tom basically start to go to sleep. Matt um, or actually before they do Tom asks how he got the letter and where he's going and all of these things and when Matt tells him the truth Tom doesn't believe him even a little bit then they go to sleep or at least tom does but matt is unable to get to sleep because he's thinking about all of the trouble that he's been having lately and then he wakes when there is a noise and doesn't wake he hears someone at the door luckily because he is awake he goes to check it uh and there are two people there he can't wake up tom in time so you know he does the only thing you can he kills both of them um and then he goes up onto the deck and basically tricks someone into letting him him know where they are by pretending he is one of the killers he then knocks that person unconscious but there is a fourth who is about to kill him when tom's dagger kills that individual um the captain then comes over is amazed at what is going on says there are never brigands at this point on the river and then as matt is walking away comments on how matt probably isn't actually a messenger or a spy he's probably an assassin we then go into rand's point of view he is playing his playing his flute, watching food roast over a fire, and he is thinking of all of the ways that he's been taunted in his dreams, including we will recognize one moment in which Egwene came to him, which we saw from Egwene's perspective. Um, He also thinks about how um, 
the last time that he hasn't really been on guard or afraid was when he was spending time with Min. Um, but then he also thinks about how a shadow spawn with Min's face came and he had to kill that shadow spawn. He also remembers when Elaine when Celine came and also when he had to kill people wearing Elaine's, Egwene's, and Nynaeve's face and thinks that it is odd that he felt the worst when he had to kill Elaine. That is the end of that chapter that it took me a while to describe, say literally anything so I don't have to, Greg. And we'll see you next time through the glass columns. No, no, no. Uh, y- you know, uh, I think this is going to, my suspicion is this is going to be a classic so, so much plot, not much to discuss. While everything is very interesting and very fun to read, um, you know, if I were to sum up my reaction to this chapter in a single question, it's obviously like, how did these people get on the boat? Right. So not only is it just a set of assassins, it's with some kind of supernatural ability. Um, I think the first third of the chapter roughly is just demonstrating to us that there's no way anybody could have known what boat and how to get there and so the fact that you know we have this sense they tailed them and then climbed aboard and then were that suggests a very powerful enemy um not just some organized footpads again we already learned they weren't footpads um and then i think it stands in stark contrast to the felix felicitas chapters right because the luck is clearly gone i mean yes he beats them yes he defeats them but the fact that we have now seen that like something much darker is afoot is really of note to me. And as a piece of that, Tom pointing out that, oh, dude, we should not be trusting these dice um, is a part of that. Yeah, that moment where after having won every single throw of the dice for an entire night, Matt sits down and starts rolling not all sixes like he has been all night, but all ones. And then it seems like his luck Mm. very much turns in the world. I thought that was a really kind of interesting and intriguing scene, right? If we're wondering what's up with Matt's luck, it seems like it kind of extends out of playing dice and into when is he running into people who want to kill him? and when are they tracking him down it seems to match up with his dice luck pretty well in the last few chapters um but then just to start at the beginning Wait, just befo- oh, before you move on though from that point um just a dumb person question meaning myself not any of our, our listeners the fact that they are literal dice also separates them from the sangria we heard about right that is correct yes because the sangria were were a like a fixed sculpture of dice essentially yes. like a, an emblem okay so these are their own thing there's still a sense that there may be something going on with them or it's coming through the old blood and it's yeah. just affecting the dice. and it is worth noting matt was telling the truth when he told tom that all of the money he won was not with his dice but with other men's dice so it is definitely luck and not the physical objects that we need to be like super concerned about at this moment um That being said, jump to the beginning of the chapter. Uh, My first note is just like, oh, Matt, you were told to only use this piece of paper in the direst of emergencies, and you use it twice in your first 20 minutes outside of the tower. (laughs) That is the most Matt Cawthon move I can think of. Like, I think it was even last week we were talking about this paper was going to be like the Chekhov's gun. Like, when would it get used? And as soon as it did, what consequences would it have? And Matt Cawthon is like, okay, let's just pull the trigger on every gun that I can possibly see. I don't have to worry about any guns if the bullets are already out of them. 
Well, and if I'm being completely honest, I, I mean, I referenced last week or the week before that's like, why not take him to the edge of the city and show right. it to the guards to get him out and not do that? And that does feel like a bit of a plot hole. The Tavirin can always help explain that plot hole ways. Well done, uh-huh. Robert Jordan. Small golf clap for figuring out a, a device. But it does feel like this uh, This was, of course, this was going to happen, right? And yeah. of course, we were going to see this used and abused. Um, and what will those consequences be? As much as I think it's a danger in Matt's hand, I still am just waiting for somebody quite evil to get it. Like, it yeah. seems like, you know, somewhere in, if we just passed halfway, I would say in this quarter of the book, somebody evil is going to get it and we'll see the consequences mm-hmm. in the last part of the book. Um, but it just does seem like way too powerful a piece of paper. And, you know, the 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 way the guard reacted to it helped with that the guard is instantly like this makes no sense but okay like, yeah we got to go with it because that's what it says <laughs> well and i think that that to some degree is a consequence of the way that i Sedai work right we've been watching moraine for the past two books just talk in circles until people are doing what she wants and so the guards are probably conditioned to like oh the Aes Sedai is saying the opposite of what they did yesterday oh well that's just what they do and I think that that kind of makes this because Aes Sedai are so unpredictable it makes this an object that could do anything instead of only reasonable things which in Matt Cawthon's hands we should be paying attention to Um, the other kind of fun moment in the early section of this chapter that I really enjoyed was getting to view Matt Cawthon negotiate with the person who is uh, running this ship because it's very obvious that Matt is having the same response that every person does the first time they go to a casino and win money. They're like, I'm going to win every time here. It's a $50 tip. Uh, a different book I'm reading right now. Somebody just had a bunch of money and they're like $1,200 for a bottle of booze. Let's do it. Like whenever. Yeah. And you know, all the celebrity chefs who have restaurants down there always have like the gold leaf dessert that's worth 60 grand or something. That's yeah. just looking for those whales. Um, and it felt like that. The other thing it felt like, and I will say this is a very self-deprecating comment. It felt like a D&D player who doesn't understand how much gold is. And yeah. that is definitely me in every D&D game I've ever played where I'm like, I flipped this guy a gold and you or my other DM I used to have, his name was Jeff. Jeff would be like, so this man's life has changed. And he goes and buys a farm and retires in this, yeah. you know, poor village that you just like ruined the economy of. So it yeah. felt a little like that, um, that the money meant no nothing to him or that he just didn't understand how much money he was throwing around (laughs) yeah and i think that that is just such a realistic look for a character who has just found out they can never lose a game of dice again and also Mm. you know just for point of reference is 17 right like this is a really bad mixture if his luck ever turns because 17 year olds do not plan for when their luck turns and so i guess what i'm saying is like good job robert jordan i am now in for matt until we see something go horribly wrong for him because i know it has to at some point and now i'm intrigued what that looks like knowing just how right things go when they go right for matt um Mm. I have nothing else until the captain of the ship goes on a diatribe about all of the things that people from Tyr hate. And 
I think it's an interesting place for Robert Jordan to put this because Matt at this point is the only character in the book who we have who is not directly pointed at the country of Tyr. And yet it's in his plot line that we learn all of these kind of intriguing details about this new lord and his anti Aes Sedai stance and the fact that Tyr doesn't have good relationships with any of their neighbors. And not to overuse a metaphor, we've already overused a billion times, but like I think it's telling us there's a powder keg somewhere where all of our other characters are going to end up. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't have a lot to add to that except yes. And the way um, Matt says things back to the captain that are like immediately dismissed as just like cockamy mean and wrong. Yeah. And that was, that was on my Matt watch. That's like Matt appears to have knowledge. He should not have in those moments and not just kind of I said, I bias, but actual scheming like a general to steal your phrase from the last chapter and kind of yeah. thinking about that. Um, yeah. What's, what's interesting to me and correct me if I'm wrong, we don't have an indication that Matt's headed to, tier do we yeah. no at this point he is making his way to Camelin to deliver the letter and then from there to wherever he would like to go but he certainly doesn't have any connection the girls are definitely going to tier right that's where they found the clues to and tier so is I, where i, I oh, definitely i just i just said matt but matt rand oh, <laughs> so yeah. if you're getting to rand in your list too I, yes is rand so, headed to tier Probably. So the last clue we got about Rand's direction was when he was his dreams were spilling into other people's dreams, and he was dreaming of Kalendor, which is at the Stone of Tear. Um, that being said, in terms of his like last immediate direction, I think Moraine was saying he was actually he heading more towards Ilion, although that would be a very reasonable kind of path along the way to Tear. Okay. Good, good clarification. Um, and like every every new piece of information we learned about Tyr is exciting, right? We yeah. learned they're anti Aes Sedai, and we learned they're uh, uh, hanging on to a huge uh, store of of uh, Sangreal. I'll get these. Terangreal. I'll get these. Um, and so that that was in previous chapters and so then we have here these kind of complicated relationships and it's like it's not like that's just a fortress where everything's hunky-dory there's right. already problems there and we've got a whole bunch of powerful players coming into this uh onto this game field and i think sure. if we're talking Attempting about a sports metaphor yeah. sports games <laughs> will mash them together sports ball it's fine uh the two things that kind of stood out to me at the end of this sequence then were one uh malia this captain seems to go on almost like a diatribe about how we need to destroy the ice to die and things are terrible and uh i think he even says something like all of the ice to die will have to die except the young ones they can kind of be reindoctrinated mm -hmm. in tear uh and then after he says this he almost like breaks for a moment, seems a little confused, and then clarifies, like, oh, that's not what I think. Clearly, like, I do a bunch of business in Tarvalon. I don't mind the eyes to die. They're not really that bad. And it almost feels like that is kind of more him speaking. And so there's a part of me that wonders if there's any sort of, like, um, you know, magic or enchantment or something going on with High Lord Samon and his kind of ideas getting into this guy's head, even though it's clear he doesn't fully believe them. Um, the other thing that just struck me as odd is we've learned in previous chapter or in previous books that Tom is 
deeply involved in politics, right? He was um, a court bard in Camelin and was, you know, an advisor to Morgays, more or less. He knows everyone in power in every major country, and he has never heard of this High Lord, nor did he hear of any kind of opportunities for a new High Lord to be raised. So I think this is something that we should really be keeping an eye on is I don't think Robert Jordan gives a name to this character and potentially like some sort of mind controlly thing and a Tom mystery without this being someone we should at least be keeping an eye on going forward. That's kind of all I can do, but keep an eye on him going forward. Good eye. I can see. We'll do. Uh, <laughs> at, at this point, you're I also think... seeing, I'm like slowly dying of, of being, I'm, just passing out because I taught too much today. It's like, <laughs> yes, uh, my very pithy comment is will do. Thank you. That's that's why I'm here. <laughs> I, I feel that too. It's been a long day. Uh, <laughs> the last thing that we've got in this chapter is what I think of as a not bad action sequence in part because it goes very fast, right? The description of Matt killing two dudes is like he used his quarterstaff. His dad told him not to do this until unless he wanted to kill someone. He killed someone. And that's pretty much all we get, which is all I need. Um, what was your thought on this really brief, but that's the good thing, action sequence? Um, well, the jumping on the ship and this I loved because as I've told our listeners before, the other book series I'm working my way through right now are the Patrick O'Brien Mastering Commander uh, Jack Aubrey books. So I'm like, I'm here for it. I know these boats. Yeah, name the sails. I got it. I know all this. <laughs> um, they didn't name any sails. Uh, so it just felt very familiar to me. I'm like, yes, boat time. I, I got this. Um I will say the thing that stuck out to me the most, and you just alluded to it, these were Matt being very much Matt, right? It's yeah. quarter staff, and it's this is how my dad taught me. Maybe he reacted a little quick to go to killing, but I think this was Matt in the driver's seat of the yeah. Matt bus. Sure. Um, that this all had to do with his identity, not anything else. Well, and I think if we're kind of looking at when are we kind of doubting Matt and when are we not, it feels like kind of these moments where instinct is kicking in are kind of the weird gray area, right? Because I think it's easy when he is uh, thinking to kind of take a look at the way that Robert Jordan is writing him and be thinking, okay, is this what I would expect from a 17-year-old or is it something different? But when Matt just does something and the narration is like, and then he stabbed him in the heart, it's, it's very difficult to figure out who's in charge because it's an action. Mm. It would be the same regardless of who's in charge. Yeah, right. I mean, literal kind of backs against the wall, ultimate self-defense. Nobody's going to question this. The prosecutors yeah. will let it slide in the court. So, um, yeah, it, I think you're right. It is hard to tell exactly who's in control. Uh, with that, is it rant time? We finally get a rant moment in this book. Rand dreaming about a people, a bunch about a people, about a bunch of people. Who knows what it all means? But it certainly, to me, speaks mostly to his mental state that he just yeah. he's very alone and how that manifests in his subconscious. We know dreams are not just the subconscious in this book. I think I don't know. I tune out during those chapters, but uh, that it seems like he is very much grappling with the fact he to be the dragon reborn is to be alone and to not be able to trust anybody. Um, 
until your summary, I hadn't thought much about the fact that he is most worried about hurting Elaine. Yeah, I have the right E name, right? Yep. And so that to me, when you said that in your summary seven hours ago, uh, I immediately was like, that's another notch in the like, they are going to end up together. Um, and that's starting to feel very much to me like Dune. And I don't know the Dune character names very well, but I do know the actors playing them. And yep. it feels like Chalamet should end up with Zendaya because that's the way that book works, but has to marry, I believe, Florence Pugh uh, yep. in or the ultimate Little Women follow up, uh, which will be strange when we get to see Dune yep. part two. Uh, but it's it's essentially it. The, the distinction there is like the character is in love and very connected to one person. That would be a Gwen for Rand as I read it, yep. but is destined and for political reasons for, you know, save the world reasons has to marry someone else. Now, if that someone else is Florence Pugh, you're going to be fine. But well, if it's uh, Elaine, like what is this going to lead to? And poor Elaine that she'll, she's destined for a man who doesn't care about her. Well, it's also worth noting Rand is destined for three women, according to Min, right? Min says herself mm. and Elaine and another are all tied up in this in some way. And so I think you're right to be highlighting. We're starting to see Rand kind of seeing that thing that we've had hinted at in the past. And then we've also got, as you're saying, this really interesting dynamic of, uh, so he is most concerned about hurting Elaine. He thinks that the last time he really felt like he wasn't worried about anything when he was around Min. And then he's also got Celine bouncing around in his head, which is clearly causing all sorts of issues. The other thing tied up in this, I think this is the first time in the series that Rand has thought to himself, am I mad already? And the fact that he is at the point of not just saying, like, I'm worried I will go mad, but instead thinking how much of this actually happened and how much of it is me being a crazy person, I think tells you he's kind of no longer confident in his own interiority, much less anything else. He's Ted Kaczynskiing, is what you're saying, and yeah. uh, soon we'll burn it all down, blow it all up. Uh, th that was a little flippant. Sorry if anybody is offended by that, but um, I it does seem like yes, a character that's already on the edge of madness, being isolated and yeah. having torturous dreams. That's a I don't know. We've never used this before. It's a powder keg ready to explode. Uh, so um, I think as much as I dislike dreams, what I continue to stay by is Moraine assured us that dreams mean something real. Egwene's plot line is putting more in that. Yeah. If there's a point to this little thing, it's to tell us that the interactions they're having in dreams are more real than we might suppose. Yeah. And then the other point seems to just be like, hey, Here's the titular character, the guy on the cover, if you bought the right edition. Let's yeah. remind you he still exists. Yeah, and I think to some degree that's really all there is here, right? It's Rand, let's check in on his mental state. Let's check in on the fact that he is still going through the same thing that he was the last time we saw him. And then the only other moment that I think kind of stood out to me is just like, hey, it's the Egwene scene again from a different perspective, right? We hear Rand remembering the time that Egwene came to him in his dream, which we already saw from Egwene's POV. Uh, that right there is maybe the only time in this series that I get that feeling you've said you've gotten about prophecies, right? I'm like, oh, this is a little too clever, Robert Jordan. Like, we already mm -hmm. saw it. You don't need to acknowledge it the second time. Um, 
any last thoughts on this chapter overall or where we're at in the book? Because we are now getting, I think we're definitely past the halfway point. And if this is a three-act structure, we got to be getting pretty close to act three at this point. Like we're closing in on two-thirds of the way through this book. How are you feeling with where we're at at this point? Um, I do think the last four chapters now have had a real lightness that makes me excited to keep going. But I'm also admittedly on the edge of let's start getting where we're going. And yeah. I think as we've read these three books, that starts to be the case in that kind of third quarter of like, okay, now you've explained to me where we're headed. Um, the difference here in this book compared to the others is we are in so many different plot lines. I think my personal taste is if we're doing multi, I guess this is the Star Wars in me. Let's cut between the the, yeah. the plot lines quickly and see them all build. Whereas this seems let's spend a long time on the women. Let's spend a long time on Matt. Let's spend. Yeah. And, you know, I, I don't think one is necessarily better than the other. But for my taste, I would rather be inching them all forward and bopping between them. So uh, I think you told me we're headed somewhere else in next week's chapter. So maybe that will inch someone else forward. Yeah. So if you take a look ahead, even just at the very beginning, we have a, a very, very lovely. Uh, oh, no, I was wrong. I thought we had a wolf. We don't. We just have the word Perrin in the first paragraph. We're getting to check in with Perrin. I'm very excited. Uh I think we are now at the part of the book where the interesting thing about this, uh, The Dragon Reborn, is that two of the three main plot lines that we're following are characters who we've basically never been in their head before, right? Perrin, we've had some time with, but both Egwene and Matt are characters who have either gotten almost no exposure or no exposure. And so I think that what we're kind of left with is in this book, it needs to do a little bit of extra setup at the beginning, but now we are, it seems like back into a plot for the second time. And hopefully that is kind of when that ball gets rolling a little bit and we start to feel that momentum pick up a little bit because we're no longer establishing any of our kind of what seems like three main plot lines. We're instead getting back into one that already feels established and we can do some more with it. Uh, I guess what I'm saying is I love this book and I don't love it for the first half. So something's got to give. <laughs> and Things are going to get really exciting as we are looking forward. And to make sure that we are moving forward at a good clip, next week we're not just going to be talking about two chapters from The Dragon Reborn. We are going to be talking about three. So that will be chapter 33, Within the Weave, chapter 34, A Different Dance, and chapter 35, The Falcon. And I mentioned Min prophecies earlier. Uh, if we're thinking about things that Min has foretold, The Falcon is one that has come up multiple times for Perrin in the past. So we may have something momentous coming, which Greg can either preview or not as he takes us out of the episode. Uh, yeah, just to note that we debated this week was a very short one uh, in terms of chapters. They're all kind of funny lengths. So we decided to go a little bit long. If that is burdensome to you, we have it on good authority from two of the three listeners we actively hear feedback from. Uh, that's not fair. Two of the four listeners we actively hear feedback <laughs> from that this show works effectively if if our selections are too long to just uh listen to uh one chapter at a time and we'll try to maintain it so people can do that um you know we're academics we read all the time like it's our job because it is our job so um we don't often think of these things but we we do recognize that not everybody reads at the pace or with uh the 
you know, um, appetite that we do. So, so hopefully this works for everybody. Break it up if you need to. Um, I'm excited to see where this goes. Like I said, I'm shopping for book number four because I guess we're going to keep doing this. Tyler prefers it because I'm really just a complete dick when we're in person, but on Zoom, I'm pretty nice. And that so I will be nice next time through the glass columns. <laughs> So ends another episode of Through the Glass Columns. We thank you for joining us and continuing with us on our quest to cover all of the Wheel of Time in our own sweet time. This podcast features original content developed by Tyler Orm and Greg Cass and is not in any way affiliated with, associated with, or condoned by the Robert Jordan Estate, Tor Fantasy, or Amazon. All content is intended for entertainment and educational purposes only. If you're enjoying this podcast, please seek out the books from your local bookshop or library and join us as we continue our journey. If you'd like to contact us to share your thoughts or give feedback, you can email us at throughtheglasscolumns at gmail.com or find us on Instagram and Twitter by searching Through the Glass Columns. Thank you once again for being part of this community. If you're enjoying the show, please subscribe to the show, leave us a review wherever you're listening, and recommend this show on your social media to help us grow our community. We look forward to welcoming you back next time Through the Glass Columns.